Well, good morning, family. It's good to be with you all this morning. Uh, for any visitors here, again, as Joel said, my name is Blake. I'm a member here at Redemption Hill. And it's been about a year since I was last able to preach, so I'm very excited for this. I'm very grateful for this opportunity. And with that said, I want to go ahead and jump into the text today. Uh, if you are a visitor here, if you're a member here, you probably know. But for visitors, we have a, hard ba- uh, a hardback black Bible under a couple of chairs there. So if you need a Bible to follow along with us, go ahead and grab one of those. And if you don't have a Bible, go ahead and take that Bible. That's our gift to you. Go ahead, take that home, read it um, free of charge. It's yours. But today we'll be in Matthew chapter 12, verses 14 through 21. I'll go ahead and give you a moment uh, to get there. As a part of liturgy that we do here at Redemption Hill, I'll go ahead and read this, and I will say, this is the word of the Lord. And if you all would just respond, thanks be to God. We'll go ahead and read now, starting in verse 14 of Matthew chapter 12. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him, how to destroy him. Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there, and many followed him, and he healed them all, and ordered them not to make him known. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud. Nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench, until he brings justice to victory, and his name the Gentiles will hope. This is the word of the Lord. Our focus this morning is going to be on this text, but especially around verse 20, where it says, A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory. One of the things that I think I cherish most about this church is that many of you, many of us, have an appreciation for the historic Christian faith and the words penned by the various heroes of the faith, if you will. Uh, Some of us are even so nerdy enough, me and Sam maybe, uh, to go ahead and name our children after some of these heroes of the faith. Uh, in hopes that they would grow up and be like them, be great and mighty Christians to be used by the Lord. But the fact of the matter is, very, very few Christians are an Owen. Very, very few Christians are a Luther or a Calvin or a Knox. Mostly, we are a very weak people. In our wills, in our hearts, in our flesh, and most ultimately in our faith. We people of belief are a great people of unbelief. As a congregation, I believe that we are right now in a season where this is perhaps more pronounced than ever. Over the last few months, we have walked together through some very real heartbreaking sorrows. We have lost some dear members over the last few months. We've seen one go and be with the Lord. We have struggled relationally with one another. We've seen our pastor struggle with his health. And right now, we are currently facing what has been called by our elders a financial crisis. And there have been many tears shed as we have navigated through these things together. 
And I think that it has brought at least one thing front and center before our eyes. And that is that we are weak. And the questions arise, what will happen and what ought we to do? Will Christ, because of our weakness, abandon us? In pruning us, will he cut us down and cut us off? And how should we act towards one another in this process, in this painful and grieving process? Today, my aim is to, by God's Spirit, communicate to your hearts that Christ will not abandon his church, nor will he break us in our weakness because of who he is and what we are. And because of this, we then should likewise not seek to break each other, but to build one another up towards boldness, holiness, courage, strength, and love. Christ will not break the bruised reed, nor quench the smoldering wick. So let's begin by giving some context of the passage that we are examining this morning. Uh, if, you, if you read the full chapter, you will see that there are two diametrically opposed sides illustrated here in Matthew. You have on one hand the religious rulers of the Jews who are much more concerned with things of ceremony on the Sabbath than the very well-being of their brothers. And then on the other hand, you have Jesus. And so Jesus and his disciples, they are walking on the Sabbath through some grain fields and being hungry, they go and they take some grain and they eat it. And this is not against the law. It is not against the law of the Old Testament, and Christ points this out when the Pharisees make the charge that he and the disciples do what is unlawful. Christ then says the following in verse 7 of chapter 12, And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. Then, right after, he goes into the synagogue, and there is this man there, and he has this, this withered hand. And these adversaries of Christ are again observing, they're waiting, they are watching with anticipation. They're very eager about what's about to happen. Now, are they eager because they want Christ to heal this man? Yes, but why? Is it because they actually love this man? Is it because they desire mercy and compassion and love to be shown to this poor, frail man by the Son of God? No. It's because they're looking for an opportunity to ask, as they did, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Christ, knowing in advance their hearts, heals this man anyway, despite the corrupt questions he knew would come, and the plotting that they would run to, plotting to murder him. He then, he finally makes his way out, and many people, seeing that he has healed this man, follow him, because they are also in need of healing. And so they have their ailments, and they are looking for the great physician. And so he looks on them. He looks on them again with love to heal their bodies and their infirmities and their weaknesses. And after he does this, he doesn't say, go and tell everyone what I've done for you. He says, go and tell no one. Tell no one of this. Matthew then quotes the prophet Isaiah here. 
And he says that in doing this, Christ fulfilled prophecy that says, Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased, speaking of Christ. I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench, until he brings justice to victory, and in his name the Gentiles will hope. And so Christ, he would not quarrel with his enemies here in the streets. He would not make some huge scene. Instead, he wanted to just quietly heal those he displayed compassion upon. He would not deal with the weak and the poor and defenseless as the Pharisees had, but rather he would deal with them with compassion and a tender heart to these men and women of lowly estate, the lowest estate. And so you have to think of this in context here. You have the king of kings and lord of lords in the heat of the day stooping to heal the outcasts of society. While the rulers of this area saw these people just as a means to evil ends of killing Jesus, Christ saw these as valuable human beings, individuals created in the very image of God to be loved and cared for and freed from their bondage of sickness. And here we come to the focus of this passage that we'll be looking at today, it says, a bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory. What does that mean? Very poetic language. You read that, okay, I don't know what that means. So we're going to look at this. What or who are the bruised reeds, and who are these smoldering wicks? Or what are these smoldering wicks? Well, let's start with the reeds. If you do just a quick Google search, you will find, if you didn't know what a reed was already, a reed is a tall, slender plant of the grass family, which grows in water or in marshy ground. That's fairly straightforward enough. It's a plant. But past that, reeds are used as symbols of weakness in Scripture. In fact, just in the chapter before this, in Matthew 11, verse 7, Jesus, speaking of John the Baptist, says, What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? And the answer here is, of course not. Uh, because John the Baptist was anything but weak uh, as far as men go. He was a man's man. He was God's man. He was quite literally a definition of unshakable and committed to the truth and committed to proclaiming that no matter who was in front of them, no matter what they thought of what he was going to say, John the Baptist, he was a man, okay? So he was not like a reed. Jesus is using this to distinguish strength from weakness, to contrast with the strong John. And we can see that also in the, New I'm sorry, in the Old Testament, a reed is used in Ezekiel. In chapter 29, verse 6, God is proclaiming judgment against Pharaoh, and he says, Then all the inhabitants of Egypt shall know that I am the Lord, because you have been a staff of reed to the house of Israel. When they grasped you in the hand, you broke." You can use reeds, probably, I don't know of any use, but I'm sure they have some use. They have various uses, I'm sure. But of all those uses, surely a staff is not one of them. It's going to break. 
A reed is not an oak. And even the mightiest and the noblest of reeds are still very, very fragile. Fragile enough that even a child could break them. But we are not speaking of the mighty and the noble reeds here, are we? We're speaking of bruised reeds, right? And so if a mighty and noble reed is already very, very, very fragile, what of those that are already breaking? What of those that already have a despairing, hunched posture? The second image that is given to us is that of a smoking wick. And if you don't want that, know what that is, this is when the candle uh, is lit and the flame is just very, very frail. Okay? Uh, it could be right when the candle is first lit, or maybe even when the candle is very close to burning out. The fire is still present, but barely. And because of this, smoke is coming out. It's being produced by it. And one could say that in a way, this candle is producing more darkness than light. And worse, it's in danger of going out completely and then being engulfed in its own darkness and smoke. And so I'm hoping by this point... um, It's very obvious, but I'll go ahead and ask you, who are the bruised reeds and the smoking wicks? Anybody have an idea? We are. It's you. It's me. It's the weak. It's the broken. It's the fragile. It's those of you who feel the strain of sin around your neck like a weight, so much so that you just can't stand up straight. And so you bend and shame. And while it's an image used to communicate a point, we also mimic this image often. You can tell just by looking at a man when he is breaking sometimes. When his eyes don't meet the world straight on, but rather they look to the ground below. It's you who have the light of Christ, but you are walking right now in darkness. It could be perhaps sin, it could perhaps be doubt, it could perhaps be sorrow, it could be a combination of these things, it could be if you are perhaps ill, or if you are going through a time of extreme temptation that you just cannot seem to shake, that old you that you just cannot seem to put to death, that sin that you just cannot kill. It's you who say, I believe, but I have so much doubt. I lack so much assurance. These reeds, we reeds, we say, I know Christ came to save sinners, but in our misery we fail to proclaim Christ came into the world to save me. And what good is Christ to my salvation if he's saving everybody else, but I'm being passed up? These feeble reeds do truly desire Christ. Make no doubt of that. But with the weight of their sin and their failures, they are in so much burden that they cannot imagine that Christ could in any way, shape, or form have any desire whatsoever for them. How can he desire me when sin is so present in my heart? He knows me. Maybe you feel as though 
Your own church doesn't even want you around. And so then you ask, if his body does not want me, how could he? How could he want me? We can be so incredibly fearful of the one that we call our Savior. But the world and our fellow believers are so often don't aid us very much with that fear. Often they just heap more and more and more burden upon us. And we begin to view ourselves in the hands of God like we view a phone in our hands, quickly becoming outdated with a new and better model right around the corner. Sure, we say, I was once loved by Christ, but that was before. It was before all of this. It's before of all my failings. And now I think, in fact, I may be worse off than when I began. But that guy, that guy, he's strong. Everyone likes him. Perhaps there was a time when I was God's man, but... I think he's God's man now. Maybe I have fulfilled my role. The honeymoon is over, and maybe now it's time for me to just fade into my own smoke, into darkness. Is this not how the world treats bruised reeds? In fact, it's often how we treat, even in the church, one another. We don't want to waste our time with those who have all the trouble in the world on their minds and in their hearts. We want the strong. We want the successful. We want those who will have the biggest return on our investment into them. And so we break the bruised reeds. And we try to pull them down until they cannot help but to fold. And we go to find those quote-unquote strong reeds, forgetting that the best reed is still all too fragile. There's the world's posture towards us that is sinners' posture towards each other. But what is Christ's posture here towards us, the bruised reeds? He declares that he will bind up the brokenhearted. He will lift up the fallen. He will take back what was lost. He will heal the sick, collecting their many tears of anguish shed not merely his own tears for his friends, but his very blood on the cross. He has been bruised for us so that we will not be crushed. Matthew eleven twenty-eight 28-30, Christ says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. But why? Why would he not break a bruised reed? Why would he not put out a smoldering wick? Why? First reason is because of who Christ is. Jeremiah 31.3 says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. 
Therefore, I have continued my faithfulness to you. And what this shows here from this text is the love of God is not one that ebbs and flows. Because God does not change, nor does his love towards you change. He loved you when you were a heathen. And so he sent a Savior for you, not to love you, but because he already loved you. He loves you as his child now that you are saved. And he comforts you still, like a father does to a son. Or with Christ, how a husband does to a wife. This love was perhaps most clearly displayed at the cross. John 15, 13 says, Greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. But Christ did one even better than this, didn't he? He laid down his life not for those that called him friend, but rather those who hated him, those who spit on his face, those who tore his garments, those who gambled all his possessions away. And as Richard Sibbs says, he, Christ, has shed tears for those who shed his blood. Even from the cross, he said, forgive them, they know not what they do. And he was held there not just by nails, but by your sin and my sin until it was done. This is love, family, that no one in your entire life that you meet will ever display to you, period, end of story. Your friends, your spouse, your children, even your parents love you because in some way you are lovable and lovely to them. But Christ, he loves you, he loved you, when there was absolutely nothing lovely or lovable about you. When you were not even remotely good, but wholly evil. When you had, quite literally speaking, no redeeming qualities, period. That's true love. It's to be able to love that which is not lovely and that which is not lovable. And this is the love that God has towards those that he calls his own. And so remember that in these sorrowful days. Reflect on that in your grief and ask yourself, will he now stop loving me? Why else does Christ not break the bruised reeds and the smoldering wicks? It is because also of who they are. They are not unbelievers. They are not unlit candles. Note of that. They are smoldering. They are broken, but... I'm sorry, they are not broken reeds, but they are bruised reeds here. They are weak, but they are not dead. They are frail, but they are not faithless. They are dim, but they are not wholly devoid of light. There is a spark there. They are the ones who say, Lord, I believe, and that is the light. Help my unbelief. That is the darkness. Husbands carry a special calling to love their wives as Christ loved the church. And so let me ask you something. 
Are you a good husband? If someone breaks into your house and you send your wife to go and fight off the assailant while you slip over and go back to bed, are you a good husband? Of course not, right? You're not only not a good husband, you're a wretched husband. You are among probably the most wicked of men if you would do such a thing to the one you call your wife. Because you have a certain duty, don't you? You carry always an ordinary duty to care for your wife at all times. But you carry an extraordinary duty to care for your wife when she is at her most vulnerable. Your duty directly correlates to how much vulnerability she is in at any given time. When her life is threatened, or when she is in grief and despair, or when she is sick, or when she is bruised. And ask yourself, is a mere husband's love for his bride greater than that which it points to? Does a husband love his wife as much as Christ loves his church, his bride? No. Of course not. Christ and the church are the true and better reality that the picture of marriage points us towards. It reveals that to us. It puts it before our eyes in a more visible way. And so if Christ will show his bride tender, and so Christ will show his bride tender care when she is bruised because of who he is and also because of who she is. And I want you to think on that in for a moment. Christ has said to his bride, he has said to you, I will not break you. What does that carry with it that is unspoken? Does that not say more than what is actually said? Christ declares, I will not break my beloved. And so we have to ask then, who will he let break her? Can you not sleep soundly while the adversaries are on the prowl at your doorstep, knowing that your protector does not sleep? Instead, he nurses your bruises, and he gently stands over your spark, tending to it to one day stir into a mighty flame. He will not break you. And because he will not break you, he will allow no one else to break you because he is a good Savior and he is a good husband. But then we ask, we think in our, in our minds, we are so weak, we must be such a pain to him, right? Because I am so weak and needy, he must, he must want to get rid of me at some point. Sure, he loves and cares for me, but he must be so tired of having to do so, right? If only I could be as someone like Paul, right, or, or Owen, or Knox, or Calvin, or Luther. If only I could be like them, because I am just a smoldering wick, but surely someone like Paul, he must be like an Olympic torch, right? And Christ would most rather use something like that, something so bright, than something like me, something so dim. Friends, we have to put that kind of thinking, to death. Kill it. Eradicate it from your mind. You have a flame 
if you believe on Christ. And a candle, remember this, cannot manifest flame on its own. It must be put there by another. And so if you have flame, you have faith. And we know that even the smallest amount of faith is still a God-given faith, which makes you just as elect, just as justified, and just as much a child of God as the Apostle Paul himself, who also had a thorn in his side. Because remember this, every flame, no matter how brightly it burns, still gives off some smoke, some darkness in this life. And it's here we can answer the question of why. Why are we to be bruised? Why does our protector, who will not break us, and say he will not let anyone else break us, why does he allow us then to be bruised? If we look in Scripture, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, 7 through 10, speaking of himself, he says, So to keep me from becoming conceited, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given to me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then, Paul says, I am strong because of Christ. Richard Sibbs on this topic says this, after conversion, we need bruising so that reeds may know themselves to be reeds and not oaks. Even reeds need bruising by the reason of the remainder of pride in our nature and to let us see that we live by mercy. He goes on from there in his book, which I really recommend if you want to look at this topic more, is Richard Sibbs' book, The Bruised Reed. But he says, he lists Peter and David and Hezekiah and Paul and all the bruises they had due to their sin. And how these things were to do two things, both to bring them down in their pride, but also to encourage the weaker saints to see that these men too, these mighty men too, struggled just as we do today, here and now. And then he says, hence we learn that we must not pass too harsh of judgment upon ourselves or others, that's key, or others, when God exercises us with bruising upon bruising upon bruising. There must be, he says, a conformity to our head Christ who was bruised for us, Isaiah says, that we may know how much we are bound to Him. And so we must be bruised. We must be reminded that we live by grace, 
that we need Christ not just for some, for some title or to belong in some, some club that we have on, on Sunday mornings, but to stand before God justified. That our new life is because Christ lived in our place, the life that we could not live. And He died the death that we all deserved, becoming bruised for us, cursed for us, so that we may be healed and so that we may be blessed. And then, with His rising from the dead, we may have hope that He is the first fruits of what's to come, that we too will not see our end in the grave, just as Christ did not see His end in the grave. And this is why we sing when we sing the song, It Is Well, which I believe we are singing today. We sing, But Lord, tis for Thee, for Thy coming we wait. The sky, not the grave, is our goal. O trump of the angel, O voice of the Lord, blessed hope, blessed rest for my soul. We may have comfort in our bruising. We may be sorrowful, but always rejoicing. Because this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory that is beyond all comparison. We may stand with Paul in Romans 8 and say, For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, all of creation, will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So a brief word of application and when this bruising will end and then we will close. We must ask ourselves because of this, how are we to live in light of the fact that Christ will not break us? How ought we then to treat our brothers and our sisters in Him? How are we to honor His name when we see, when we in our bodies see one another struggling with sin, and we all do? Are we to look at one another and find that we are much more mighty than each other? Are we to hold each other's weaknesses against each other. Women, are you to be indirect and gossip about them, using your tongue to breed disdain in the body for them? Men, are you to openly shame them, cast them away from the brotherhood because they just aren't worth the trouble? Peter was told by Christ, that he would be bruised. He was told in his bravado of saying that he would never deny the Lord. He was told by Christ himself to his face, you will deny me three times. But then Christ says, I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Strengthen your brothers when you come back from the bruising. 
Family, we are called to so much more. We are called to image God to one another by loving each other with long-suffering, even when we are hurt by one another or bruised by one another, encouraging one another towards holiness and reminding one another that Christ will not break us. And so therefore, we must not seek to break each other. We must have sympathy for one another because we all too, every one of us knows what it is to be bruised. In coming to the Lord's table today, I urge you to examine yourself for sins against one another. Repent of these things and come to Christ who now seeks to feed you because you like me, like the person to the left, and the person to your right, are weak. And you need to be nourished with the body of Christ that was broken so that you will not break. Broken for you so that you will not break. And his blood shed for you that you may have life. And for those of you who perhaps are not of this flock, this flock that will bruise but never break, I urge you likewise to repent. Repent of all your sins and believe in Christ, His person and His work. Because though Christ will not break His bride, a day is coming where the world will be judged. And if you are not found in Christ with Him as your Savior, you will be broken. And we do not want that for you. We want you to have life. We want you to have security. And most of all, we want you to have Christ. And so you may ask yourself, how is it then that Christ could accept me? And I'll answer you the same way that he accepts all of us. He bids you to come. He does not demand that you bring him anything because he is lacking in nothing. But rather, he simply bids you to come, cling to him, and simply believe that he is sufficient. And I pray that this word of Christ works in your hearts today. Isaiah 61, 1-3 says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them beautiful headdresses instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of faint spirits, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that He may be glorified. Family, in this time of pruning and bruising, we must remind one another that this present sin will not break us.
this work begun in us will be brought to completion on that glorious day coming when the Lord will finally bring justice to victory. The fighting will be over. Sin will be slain. And we, beloved, we will be oaks of righteousness who no longer bruise. Let's pray. Father, we are not worthy to be loved, and yet you love us. Yet you sent your Son for us to live among us, to suffer like us, but to be holy and to be a sacrificial lamb for us so that we would not be broken, but rather we would have a scapegoat. It is an amazing thing that you have done for us, Father, and the things that you continue to do now. Even now, in our weakness, you have given us a day, the Lord's day, this Sabbath, to come together as this local expression of your church, and to have the means of grace that is the word preached, where Christ seeks to heal us of our weakness by bolstering our faith to the word that he has declared. I pray that this word that has gone out does not return void, Father. May it penetrate the hearts of the hearers. I pray that this vessel has been faithful to the text, that truth has been proclaimed. And I pray that what has been understood in the mind and accepted by the heart will be seen in the hands of this congregation as we love one another and bind each other up rather than seeking to destroy one another or tear one another down. May we know that we are united by blood, the blood of your Son. We pray these things, Father, in that Son's matchless name. Amen.